Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. So we're going to continue our 2021 WDET book club discussions today about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it shaped and still guides our lives in our nation today. And this time, I'm digging into the Constitution as it relates to race and to racial equality. And I've got two experts who are here ready to join me. To put it simply, the founders got it horribly wrong on race when they wrote the U.S. Constitution. They preserved the slave trade and permitted the capture and transfer of escaped slaves among states. They counted African Americans as three-fifths of a, purpose, of a person for the purposes of deciding census population, literally fractioning to pieces the very idea of human equality. And yet, even through the Civil War amendments and 20th century legislative efforts to embolden race-based constitutional provisions, societal and systemic racism persists. So, as the Black Lives Matter movement, the talk about critical race theory, talk of reparations for African Americans, and so many other crucial conversations build momentum around the collective acceptance that our nation has never seen or established true racial equality, where does the Constitution fit into the equation today? Here to talk with me about the Constitution as it relates to race, and also how this document relates to this current moment, are two people who think about this topic quite a bit. Alan Jenkins is a professor of practice at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on race and the law, communication, and social justice. Professor Jenkins, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. And David J. Garrow is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author who's professor of law and history and distinguished faculty scholar at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Professor Garrow, welcome to Detroit thank, Today. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Stephen. Yes. So I want to start with uh, that very idea of the Constitution itself and what it does uh, to try to assure racial equality. I think it's fair to say that the Constitution as it stands today should have produced more racial equality in our nation than we see on a daily basis. So how does this moment of racial reckoning relate to the ways that race was originally dealt with in the Constitution and the way that we have changed that over time. Uh, Professor Jenkins, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Well, thank you. So, you know, as you noted, Stephen, the Constitution that was originally adopted in our country was fundamentally flawed as it relates to race. And it, it's it's almost an understatement to say they got it wrong, right? They, they achieved framers of the Constitution achieved exactly what they set out to achieve with respect to race, which was maintaining the institution of slavery. Uh, indigenous peoples were given uh, even less uh, attention, and, and subsequently uh, the Constitution allowed their uh, repeated uh, relocation and, and attempted genocide. The uh, Reconstruction era after the Civil War was really uh, transformative. And for a brief period after the Civil War and during Reconstruction, you saw the uh, outlawing of slavery, the Equal Protection Clause and Due Process uh, 
uh, clauses of the 14th Amendment. You saw the uh, lifting of racial restrictions on voting by men, so black men uh, allowed to vote for the first time. And you saw also a transformation of our relationship between states, the federal government, people, and human rights. Lots of African-Americans, all men, elected to Congress, to state legislatures in the South, institution not only of uh, kind of formal equality, but of uh, economic, greater economic equality, of the introduction really of, of uh, universal public education in the Southern states, which was championed by African-American lawmakers. And then a compromise and the rights of African-Americans are compromised away and you see a long period of almost 100 years uh, of inaction the, uh, until the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, which we often think of as a second reconstruction. Uh, and so, you know, to, to answer your question more directly, I think our Constitution as it stands with those 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, and uh, of course the, the 19th Amendment giving the right to vote to women, necessary but not sufficient for racial justice. Uh, you know, a quick example, you think of the killings of uh, unarmed African-Americans by police officers without justification. If we didn't have a provision of our constitution requiring equal justice under law, we would all be pushing for one. Mm. And it is simultaneously true that we have one, and yet these killings continue. So the constitution that we have is a critical element uh, but it is not enough standing on its own to guarantee equal opportunity or equal racial justice. Mm -hmm. uh, David Garrow, uh, talk about why these fixes haven't been enough and whether we ought to be having a more frank conversation about the Constitution itself in this moment. Is it that the Constitution is not sufficient in the ways uh, that it protects and preserves equality and that we ought to be kind of returning to those foundations uh, as we try to, again, perfect the things that, uh, that are imperfected uh, in, our in our culture. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, you know, in the late 1860s, you know, were incredibly bold for that time. Um, but uh, the U.S. Supreme Court throughout the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, uh, weakened uh, those constitutional provisions, uh, most notoriously in, in pretty much vitiating uh, the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment by uh, coming up with a somewhat uh, notional distinction between uh, U.S. citizenship and, and state citizenship. But in addition to the, the court's failings, um, both during... Andrew Johnson's presidency and then during Ulysses S. Grant's presidency, uh, the federal government simply was not willing to make the military investment in the southern states uh, that, was, that would have been necessary uh, to hold back uh, the defeated white supremacists. Um, I'm not an expert on Reconstruction, but I've been doing uh, a fair amount of Reconstruction reading recently. And the lesson comes through very powerfully that, that the end of the Civil War 
did not represent defeat in in the minds of of white supremacists. Uh, they continued resisting uh, uh, black equality across the South uh, very forcefully, very violently. Um, I recently read Adam Faircloud's uh, superb book on on. Uh, Natchitoches Parish, uh, Louisiana, up in the Red River Valley, called the Revolution that Failed, and and that's very much Adam's argument. Um, and so Reconstruction ended uh, because of of white pushback and and the federal abandonment uh, of the biracial, uh, the new biracial political world in the South. And then we settled into a, a long stretch of decades, uh, you know, from the, the 1880s and 1890s right up till World War II in the 1940s, uh, when the racial situation in the, in the South remained uh, pretty universally uh, abysmal. And it's really only uh, after 1945, particularly with the return of black service members who'd served overseas, particularly in Europe, and, and had experienced a degree of uh, racial acceptance or quasi-equality uh, in Europe and in Britain, <laughs> unlike anything they'd experienced in the U.S. South. Um, the energy of those men is, is what helps to start building uh, the early movement uh, in the late 1940s and early 50s. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Alan, uh, you have talked about the 14th Amendment helping us achieve racial justice and also holding us back. Uh, I'd love for you to explain to our listeners what you mean when you say that. Well, first, as uh, you know, as you heard uh, Professor Garrow say, the Supreme Court has repeatedly uh, throughout our history interpreted this you know, 14th Amendment, which was intended to be transformative in narrow and restrictive ways. And so uh, in, in the Reconstruction era, the court said that the Equal Protection Clause restrains only state action, not discrimination by businesses, by individuals, by agencies. Uh, in the uh, 1970s, you have a conservative, increasingly conservative Supreme Court, intentionally anti-civil rights, right, uh, packed with uh, justices appointed by President Nixon in, in that instance, who find that the, who, who announced that the, uh, the anti-discrimination provisions of the Equal Protection Clause uh, require a showing of intent. In other words, it's not enough that the state uh, it passed a law or enacted something that discriminates against black people or other people of color in practice in order to show a, a violation of the Constitution, the court decided in uh, 1976, you have to also show that there was an intent to harm uh, that racial group, which is very difficult to prove under the law. And the court went on in subsequent years uh, to find that uh, it's not enough to show that a, a government was aware of a discriminatory effect and took that uh, action anyway, but you also have to show that they took that action because, again, they wanted to harm uh, people of color. We knew then, and we certainly know now, that that's not how discrimination works. And so that left untouched 
a wide range of types of discrimination from implicit or subconscious bias to uh, a lot of covert discrimination that's very difficult to prove to actions that might be taken, uh, for example, with regard to uh, housing ordinances that effectively keep people of color out of communities and result in segregation, but where it can't be proved that there was uh, intentional discrimination. And so that's been, I would say, one of the greatest ways in which the, uh, the Equal Protection Clause in particular has been used in this instance by the courts and by opponents of equal opportunity and civil rights to hold us back. Uh, the, the other example, I think, is really the kind of restrictive reading by, again, uh, increasingly conservative courts and Supreme Court of uh, diversity and equity and kind of traditional affirmative action practices. The court really uh, holding in many instances, if you consider race in order to create greater and more, greater and more equal opportunity, you've somehow violated the constitution. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, the Voting Rights Act, section four and five of the Voting Rights Act, which has helped to transform our country and make it much more equitable and inclusive uh, is struck down by this conservative Supreme Court on the nonsensical, in my view, argument that it considers race too much and that it uh, disrupts the relationship between state and federal governments, even though that's what that Reconstruction uh, Amendment was intended to do. And so uh, the problem here, I would argue, is not the Constitution. It's the political process and the, the appointment, repeated appointment intentionally of judges and justices who bring the most narrow uh, ahistorical and in some senses non nonsensical interpretations of those provisions to hold us back as a nation in our progress towards greater and more equal opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Professor Garrow, you have talked about the notion of equal protection building slowly uh, over time and that uh, the 14th Amendment uh, has kind of unfolded in fits and starts. Uh, but, but I wonder if you think that we are at a point where we do have equal protection uh, according to the 14th Amendment, the way it's written, the way it's interpreted, uh, the way it sort of acts on our lives in this country, or whether it still needs to be animated uh, more by the courts. Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 was a, a tremendous leap forward, uh, both for the Supreme Court, you know, deciding it unanimously, um, and for the country, um, but more as a symbolic declaration, um, albeit one that, that inspired black Southerners in, in places like Montgomery, Alabama, um, but the actual practical impact of Brown, particularly on public schools in the South, uh, was delayed for uh, well over, you know, 12, 13 years. Um, Professor Jenkins earlier briefly mentioned the, the state action doctrine, um, and, and that uh, in particular um, really impacted our history in the 1960s, 
uh, because when Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, which President Kennedy had championed uh, prior to his assassination, um, the 64 Act is is based upon Congress's commerce power, mm-hmm. uh, the power to to protect and advance interstate commerce, uh, with the notion being that racial discrimination against black people harms interstate commerce. Uh, so in the 60s, uh, proponents of black advancement had to stretch and, and use that you know, somewhat odd choice of the commerce power uh, because of how weakened uh, the 14th Amendment was as, as a result of the, uh, the 19th century uh, Supreme Court. Um, and we see that again. I don't want to become too technical. Uh, we see that again when it comes to, to uh, discrimination in housing mm-hmm. uh, in the 1968 uh, uh, Act. Um, and particularly in, in, with questions of, of economic access uh, and wealth accumulation and, and the multitude of uh, explicitly racist housing practices uh, that were replete all across the country, uh, most intensely in, in big northern cities uh, like Chicago and no doubt Detroit. Um, it, it's a very technical policy history um, but the the economic weakness of, of so much of black America has its roots in those decades of uh, uh, explicitly racist uh, discriminatory housing practices. Mm. I'm talking with uh, Alan Jenkins. He's a professor of practice at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on race and the law, communication and social justice. Also with us is David J. Garrow. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and author who's a professor of law and history and distinguished faculty scholar at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. They are with us today as part of our 2021 WDET Book Club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it plays out in our lives now, specifically looking at issues of equality and inequality. Uh, Remember, you can always join our WDET Book Club at the uh, WDET Book Club Uh, page on Facebook. I believe the number of people now uh, who are members there is approaching 900. Uh, It's an incredible uh, group where there's a lot of discussion about uh, all of these things uh, over over many years, in fact, uh, as we have uh, each summer taken uh, time uh, in the book club to use text about uh, equality and inequality to talk about the way it plays out uh, in our lives here in America. Uh, you can also get more information about the book club at uh, wdet.org slash constitution. And remember that you can get a free copy of the U.S. Constitution uh, if you go to that uh, Facebook page. Uh, Alan and David, uh, I, I want to talk just a little about right now and the things that we're seeing uh, unfold in, in front of us, uh, the arguments that we're having uh, about racial inequality, about reparations, about things like critical race theory. It seems to me that those things have their roots in uh, in the foundations of the U.S. Constitution, but, but I'm not sure it's clear to everybody what role the Constitution itself plays in those issues and whether there needs to be more of a, uh, I guess, discussion about uh, the Constitution as we talk about uh, each of those issues. Uh, David Garrell, I'll start, I'll start with you this time. Uh, what should we be thinking about constitutionally 
uh, as we as we come to sort of uh, loggerheads uh, over over these modern issues that harken back to the inequalities that we had at the beginning. I, I think one of the great lessons of the 1960s, maybe for Dr. King, for Bayard Rustin, for others, it was the number one lesson of the 60s, is that passing uh, statutory law like the 64 Act, like the 1965 Voting Rights Act, um, that those become highly celebrated uh, historical achievements, um, but that no congressional enactment uh, targeting segregation, targeting explicit discrimination, uh, really reaches down into uh, the economic uh, issues uh, that plague uh, black minority urban neighborhoods, uh, number one with housing, as I already mentioned, uh, number two with access to, to employment, access to jobs, the, the geography of race and the geography of employment um, are very powerful issues, whether in a Chicago or, or even here where I am in, in Pittsburgh, a, a smaller but uh, similarly highly segregated city. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the inequality uh, in urban schooling, uh, leaving aside uh, the success of, of the charter school movement, uh, inequality in, in urban schooling um, continues forward. Um, and uh, it's certainly my perspective that, that much of what needs to be done uh, and intensified um, going forward uh, happens at local community levels. Uh, Professor Jenkins, uh, tell us what we should be thinking about as we have these conversations uh, about equality in 2021. Well, you know, the first point I would make is that uh, elections matter, voting matters. And so uh, President Trump, former President Trump, for a number of reasons, was able to make uh, multiple appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court that shifted the court from one that was poised to be um, you know, one that is sensitive to civil rights and inclusion. Uh, had President Obama been allowed by the then Republican-controlled Senate to appoint uh, Merrick Garland, had the, uh, you know, that same uh, Republican majority in the Senate uh, abided by its own rule uh, that it had articulated that uh, you know, a few months before an election is too late to uh, uh, confirm a Supreme Court justice uh, and not uh, done so to replace the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we would have a very different U.S. Supreme Court and we could potentially have a very different set of interpretations of our Constitution. I, I actually believe that the Constitution we have is can make significant advances, but not if it's intentionally interpreted uh, to deny uh, equal opportunity and, and racial justice. I think that's the, the first thing. A second point is, you know, during that same period that Professor Garrow has so uh, el- eloquently written and, and spoken about uh, in the post-World War II period in which uh, the civil rights movement was born, uh, the United States also took a leadership role in uh, helping to create an international human rights system. 
with Eleanor Roosevelt, for example, being one of the, the lead US uh, framers of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And the Universal Declaration, our international human rights system, includes so many of these economic rights that uh, Professor Garrow mentioned, right? The, the right to gainful employment uh, that utilizes your skills, the right to a quality education, the right to the highest sustainable level of health that uh, a, a country is capable of providing. And in a, a country like the United States with its great resources, that is a much higher level of health than we all have. And certainly than most Americans feel that they have the right to. And so again, the framework is there, but the United States almost immediately after helping to create that system began moving away from the economic, social and cultural rights there, the right to education, the right to health, the right to gainful employment, uh, because the Cold War had begun and they considered those to be socialist. But remember, th those kinds of rights were actually also embedded in uh, President Roosevelt's Four Freedoms uh, speech in a lot of the New Deal policies. And so again, the, the elements are there in our laws, in our uh, history and practices, but we need the political will to implement them. And that ultimately comes down to uh, our people who share those values and those goals, voting and demanding of their elected officials that they pursue the true meaning of those provisions and the values of greater and more equal opportunity. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our 2021 WDET Book Club discussion uh, this week about uh, race and equality as they relate to the U.S. Constitution and, of course, the conversations and arguments that we're having in 2021 in America. Uh, we're going to want to hear from you when we get back. Uh, call and tell us what you think about the U.S. Constitution as it relates to racial equality. Is it where it should be, uh, or is there more work to do. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We are continuing our 2021 WDET Book Club discussions today with a look at racial equality, how it was framed in the Constitution originally, how it has changed over time, and the effect of those changes on equality in our lives. Uh, in 2021, we are still having really robust and sometimes quite passionate and even angry arguments about racial equality, whether it can be achieved, how it should be achieved, uh, the consequences of it not being uh, fully accepted or enforced uh, already. Uh, what parts of those arguments and conversations find their roots in the Constitution uh, itself? I've got two really great uh, constitutional 
scholars with us uh, this hour to talk about this. Alan Jenkins is a professor of practice at Harvard Law School, and David J. Garrow is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author who's professor of law and history at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. We want to hear from you as well. Do you have questions about the ways in which the U.S. Constitution deals with racial equality and the way in which it has shaped our notions of racial equality over time? What do you think needs to change about our laws to better address the racism that was and is still such a big part of life in this country? Do you think the ways in which race is written about in the Constitution tells a different story than the one we've told ourselves about uh, America's founding. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to include you in the conversation that way. Let's start today with Jerry in Detroit. Jerry, welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning, Stephen, and to your guests. Uh, I was calling about the contradiction in the, or lack of equal protection in the Constitution for uh, minorities. Uh, I was, uh, I'm a veteran from uh, the Vietnam War, and all of, uh, I was there in all of 1967. And the Marine non-commissioned officers I served under, without them, I, I might not have come back. And there's uh, not enough credit given throughout uh, society for the uh, contributions on the part of African-Americans in particular in the military, especially mm. in war. Mm. Uh, Jerry, that's a really, that's a really interesting uh, point to raise here, the, the, the ways in which uh, you know, people's lives often are shaped by uh, the perseverance and resilience of uh, African-Americans to, uh, to, to to overcome the barriers that uh, that have been placed in front of us and and the military is a really interesting uh, is a really interesting example of that. I'm really glad you called and uh, and shared that with us. Stephen, uh, I'd, I'd yeah, love to comment on that if go it's ahead. okay. Sure. Yeah, so Jerry, thank you so much. I just a quick story. My dad, who was a, a Detroiter, uh, worked in the the River Rouge uh, Ford plant and wow. then was drafted in World War II. Uh, and was picked to be one of the nation's first U.S. Marine, black U.S. Marines uh, and was trained at Montford Point with a, a whole group of the first first crop of black U.S. Marines. Uh, and so they fought, he fought in the Pacific. They were fighting for the freedom of all people and uh, particularly Americans. And they were also at the same time enduring the most heinous types of discrimination Mm -hmm. within the military uh, and uh, including in basic training. uh, My my dad, uh, his name was Benjamin Jenkins. We did a StoryCorps interview that folks can probably Google and find, so I I won't take up the time to talk about some of the atrocities that he and his fellow African-American soldiers weathered. Uh, But again, this was at the same time that they were fighting uh, for freedom and equality uh, uh, halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. And as Professor Garrow notes, 
those black soldiers came back and many of them simply were not willing to take the kind of indignities that they had endured before the war. And, you know, that was a major contributor to the civil rights movement. So, you know, that kind of dual aspect of being an American, of fighting for your country, and also having to fight with your government mm -hmm. to provide you the basic dignity and equality that all people deserve is really fundamental to our U.S. history, not only to African-American history, uh, but to history writ large. And we see that now today, right? It's so, so many people are quick to say that if you criticize the government uh, and the way in which our, our governments and institutions continue to discriminate and exclude people of color, then somehow that's not uh, patriotic or, or uh, is, uh, you know, somehow subversive. I would say that there's a tradition of civil rights, of loving your country so much that you insist on holding it to its highest values. Mm, yeah. You know, uh, Alan, the, you, the story that you told about your dad reminds me of a story I tell frequently about my own father, who uh, who grew up in Natchez, Mississippi in the 30s and 40s, um, and then uh, joined the Air Force uh, during the Korean War and served in, in that war. And then when it was over, came home to Natchez, Mississippi. And uh, I, I talk about the 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 country he came home to and the things that had not changed for him. Uh, he he could not vote in his home state even after serving uh, in the military during a war uh, mm. until the mid 1960s because of uh, uh, discrimination and not until the Voting Rights Act was was passed. Uh, he couldn't eat at lunch counters uh, in in uh, places in in Natchez. And he, I think most importantly, you know, he couldn't take advantage of the GI Bill and the things that it was affording to all kinds of people coming back from the Korean War uh, in terms of uh, housing opportunity and education, things that help build intergenerational wealth. Uh, you know, my dad never owned a home. Uh, my dad never got a college degree. Uh, those are two things that lots of returning GIs took advantage of to, to build for their families. And uh, that, that absolutely gets to this, this duality you're talking about for, for African-Americans who serve uh, in the military. And it casts forward, right? It's not just mm -hmm. that he missed out on those opportunities. It's that, uh, you know, future generations of his family didn't get the benefits of, uh, of those things. And it's hard sometimes, I think, for people to, to, to quite wrap their minds around that as, uh, as predicate for the things that we see today. But it absolutely, uh, it absolutely is. Uh, David Garrow, I wonder what your thoughts are on uh, what we've been talking about here with uh, the military and, and African-Americans. I'm, I'm no expert on the military, but I'd make two quick points, Stephen. Um, you know, as Julian Bond, um, among other young people in the movement, started highlighting, um, you know, even in 19, the mid-1960s, um, U.S. servicemen uh, sent to Vietnam uh, in the worst times of that war, as, as uh, our, our caller alluded to, 
you know, were disproportionately black draftees. Um, and, and, you know, within the black community at that time, I think there was, uh, you know, fairly widespread awareness of that. Um, you know, though early uh, black dissent against the Vietnam War was, was uh, you know, quite unpopular with most of the establishment uh, civil rights leadership. But the, the home ownership issue that, that, you know, you mentioned, you know, from your own family's history, Stephen, um, is so central uh, to what's happened over the decades. Um, you know, and most listeners are going to, you know, know the word redlining mm-hmm. as, as the, the most common word for how uh, mortgage, mortgage discrimination targeted uh, minority-majority uh, neighborhoods. Um, but to dig into that history requires some some real effort. Um, I always recommend a superb book on on the West Side of Chicago titled "Family Properties" mm-hmm. uh, by a, a historian named Beryl Satter, S A T T E R. Um, but it's crucial history, even if, if it is uh, you know financially complicated. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, uh, Jerry, really appreciate. The call uh, and the comments. Uh, let's go to Mark in Detroit. Mark, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning. Hi. Go ahead, uh, Mark. Yep. Yes, yes. I just wanted to say here that um, it is my personal belief from studying the Constitution of the United States and other various constitutions throughout the world that the United States Constitution is one of the greatest political documents ever drafted. Its intended purposes was to create equality among people, unlike other societies and nations whose constitution specifically limits certain peoples. But uh, it's the application of the constitution and the interpretation of certain provisions is what creates the problem for the races here in America. And so uh, it's been like that uh, ever since the very beginning, including with the three fifth clauses and things of that nature, and all the way through the constitutional amendments, and particularly the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. And so it's, those, it's the interpretation and application mm. due to certain social norms of a particular group of people that creates the problem. And one of my major issues right now, I've been noticing that you have various groups who are pushing for certain things, the one in particular is the repeal of certain constitutional amendments, and particularly the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. And that right there will create a very, very social problem here in the United States. But besides that, the constitutional amendment of the United States is one of the greatest documents mm-hmm. ever drafted politically, and we should stick to it and support it. And, uh, and somewhere along the line, we want to figure out these problems in regards to the races as it comes up under the United States Constitution. Yeah, Mark, I, I really appreciate the call and your really thoughtful uh, take on all of this. Uh, the dichotomy he's talking about, of course, is is at the center of this this conversation. That uh, this wonderful document that you know embraces freedom in so many ways fell so far short when it came uh, to race. Uh, David Gare, I'll give you the first chance at responding to Mark. One thing none of us have touched on so far, Stephen, is how incredibly difficult it is to amend the U.S. Constitution yes. or, or add to it. Um, you know that any 
uh, imagined potential amendment uh, not only has to be approved by by both houses of Congress, uh, but but it then has to be uh, ratified by a, a supermajority of of the U.S. states, and so it's it's as a result of that it's it's relatively uh, rare uh, for there to be serious uh, uh, discussion uh, about amending the Constitution, uh, and I think that that is is what leaves us with a situation where. Uh, the federal courts, and particularly the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, weigh so uh, heavily, so importantly, uh, because the Constitution is, is, you know, pretty much their baby uh, rather than the uh, uh, wider American populations. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Alan Jenkins, uh, listening to Mark, it, it sort of just reminds me of that frustration that I think lots of people feel about the Constitution, because it does have so much potential. Those words are so powerful, and yet the way in which they've played out, uh, you know, over 245 years has fallen pretty short of, uh, of that ideal. Well, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I mostly agree with Mark. Uh, it's a remarkable document, and certainly at the time it was adopted, it was a, a great leap forward and had uh, our, you know, early politicians and uh, judges and the like taken seriously, taken the, the phrase uh, all men are created equal uh, to mean all people are created equal. Uh, I think we would be living in a very different country now. And certainly if uh, the, you know, after the Civil War, those uh, 13th, 14th and 15th uh, amendments had been taken seriously. I do think, though, it's a it's it's worth considering some of the alternatives. So uh, you know the South African Constitution, for example, it, which of course was adopted, you know, uh, in the apartheid, yeah. uh, right ninety in the nineteen nineties uh, after post apartheid and and with the leadership of Nelson Mandela, remarkable uh, document that makes explicit some of the things that we are fighting about now as a nation, arguing about now as a nation, and that our um, increasingly conservative Supreme Court has restricted. So for example, the South African constitution makes clear that discrimination in practice, whether or not it was intended to harm a particular race, uh, violates that constitution, that affirmative action to overcome past discrimination with limits is uh, fully consistent with the South African constitution mm -hmm. as written. Uh, there's a right to employment. There's a right to the highest attainable standard of health. There's a right to shelter in a country that has far, far fewer resources than we do. Now, they had the South African, uh, uh, you know, framers of the South African constitution, they had, high, you know, hindsight on our experience, right? They were able to see sure, what sure. we uh, either got wrong or, or failed to interpret in a way that expanded opportunity and equality, and they corrected for that explicitly. But you know, I, I do think it's important for us to remember that there are other ways to implement uh, equality, including, as I noted, the, the international human rights uh, system that 
the United States helped to lead and implement yeah. uh, yeah. after World War II. Yeah. Okay, we need to take another quick break, uh, but we'll come back and get to more of your calls and comments. Uh, we'll also, of course, keep Alan Jenkins and David Garrow with us. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and we are talking about uh, the U.S. Constitution, the way it relates to equality as part of our 2021 WDET Book Club uh, discussions. Uh, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about race inequality in the U.S. Constitution. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and We'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Al in Royal Oak. Al, what's on your mind? Well, hi, Stephen. Hi. Nice to be with you. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out that the only compromise I can come up with is that because of all the Trump supporters and stuff, but let's say, for example, we give full reparations to anyone who has, you know, uh, improved their from slave ancestry. Mm -hmm. Full, I'm talking full, extreme. Mm -hmm. In exchange, and what they want is, you know, to take back separate but equal. Would that be a, an outrageous idea? Oh, I see what you're because, saying. In you other know, words, in other words... Yeah. In other words, uh, if we were to compensate African-Americans in, in some really comprehensive way, then we would not enforce uh, equality in the same way going going forward. In other words, we'd, we'd go back to the idea of separate but equal. Al, that's a really provocative idea. Um, I, I really appreciate your calling and, and offering that. Um, I want to get our two, two guests uh, to, to respond to it. Alan Jenkins, I'll give you first crack at that. Sure. Well, yeah, Al, uh, great name. And that is super provocative. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to take that deal. Uh, you know, because here's the thing, the, the part of the beauty of the Equal Protection Clause is it didn't say, uh, you know, black people get equal treatment or black people get reparations. Uh, it says equal protection of the law, under the law. Uh, and, you know, we all need that. Right. So uh, reparations, uh, you know, whatever one thinks about them, are not going to address the injustice that happens tomorrow. Uh, reparations for African-Americans are not going to address the, uh, the discrimination that has occurred and will occur uh, against Latinx people or Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, uh, or you know subgroups, uh, ethnic groups of of white folks, right? So uh, I think that uh, yeah, I wouldn't make that substitution, and nor do I think we have to, right? I think uh, our current constitution, properly interpreted, allows for both restorative efforts for harms that have been done and forward-looking uh, 
uh, prohibitions and repair. Uh, and, you know, just specific to your point, Al, I think, you know, separate but equal is a part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I live in a, a diverse and integrated community uh, in uh, the Northeast. And if someone were to tell me, hey, here's a check, but uh, you got to move, you got to move to someplace uh, that's, you know, 100%. African-American, and that's going to be the determining factor, and sorry, it's separate and uh, and it's equal, Uh, that would be a a grave uh, injustice to my freedom and and dignity. Uh, Not because I have any problem living in a Black neighborhood, but because race uh, cannot and should not be the the aspect of my character uh, that's allowed to direct where I live or how I live my life. Yeah. Uh, David Garrow, we've got about uh, a minute and a half left. Uh, you will get the last word on this subject. Oh, Alan, what Alan just said uh, was, was uh, so, so beautifully phrased. Um, I, I don't go a day or two without uh, ruing how, how overly partisan uh, so much of, of today's uh, discussions and, and debates in the U.S. are. I mean, this is particularly true about about voting at the present time where we we have politicians in both parties and i stress both parties um, who are distorting situations in in different states uh... simply to to achieve partisan advantage whether you know georgia texas arizona uh, here in pennsylvania um, my first book uh, over 40 years ago now was on the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. uh, of 1965, and I uh, I'm very troubled by by how uh, the basic uh, issues of of voting rights uh, have become so uh, uh, infected with with partisanship. Um, that was not uh, uh, to any significant degree the case in, in uh, uh, either the 1960s or when the Voting Rights Act was uh, amended and extended in the 1970s. Uh, so I, uh, I come to this with, with uh, you know, some significant measure of, of pessimism. Mm-hmm. Um, but but economic opportunity, economic resources, economic strength, um, those are the the my mind the leading uh, issues uh, going forward. Yeah. Okay. Alan Jenkins and uh, David Garrow was really wonderful to have both of you here for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Stephen. Okay going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.